but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. Huzzah! <laughs> <laughs> I told you I had a bit of a surprise mm -hmm. for you at the start. Oh, that was it? That was it, yeah. We're we're watching The Great. We've got one episode left, and it's, it's filled with huzzahs. So there. Yes, that is the catchphrase. <laughs> we are in the middle of Pride Month, and before we get into the show, a special shout-out and thanks to Tom Humberstone, who has been or designer over the years for our various artwork that you may see associated with the body serve and he's given the body serve a pride makeover so we've updated all of our various socials and websites and you can have a look at what he did there we think it's just swell so thank you tom so there's been a lot of news this week tennis is not exactly back in full swing but it is apparently coming soon the plans are in place for the U.S. Open, Roland Garros, and for the WGA, a pretty full fall schedule. This seemed to all happen in one day. Yeah, basically. Oh, you wake you wake up before I do, so when I got up, I won't tell you when that was, or when that typically is. <laughs> there was a lot for me to catch up on, and it took a while. It took like a full day to right. feel like I had a a grasp on what was going on, and what it felt like to me was. One domino started, and then everybody was like, well, damn. Yeah, so the USTA teased a little bit earlier in the week that they were primed to go ahead, that a big announcement was coming, pending government approval. We had heard rumors about these Zoom calls, this huge ATP Zoom call that Noah Rubin was talking about on the Behind the Racket podcast, criticizing Novak Djokovic for allegedly not being there. So we knew there were... There's nothing alleged about it. He was not there. Oh, okay. Well, you know, he wasn't there. That was the whole point of you know, the critique. I don't want to get spreadsheeted. You know, everybody's got to be charted <laughs> once in a while. You know, so there were there were murmurs throughout the week, but on Wednesday at 10 a.m., the U.S. Open holds a press conference in the empty and cavernous Arthur Ashe Stadium. Stacy Allister is there. They had a you know a few other folks on court, a physician, an MC. I forgot who that was. Sorry, my reporting skills are just not up to snuff over the uh, the tennis break. But it was very much a public relations event. There were a lot of sport reporters on Zoom. So after the, the press conference happened, or after the main presentation happened, there were individual questions by reporters who they showed on Zoom. And when we found out that there wouldn't be media physically on site, we got the sense that this too was a trial run for what the media access will be at the actual tournament, where presumably players will be interviewed via Zoom. Right. So the big announcement, as I'm sure you've already heard, is that the U.S. Open will go ahead uh, as planned in the, the same part of the calendar in New York City at Billie Jean King National Tennis Center with no spectators and with uh, a lot of health provisions in place. But listen... I'm still, I'm surprised that they're going full steam ahead. I'm still extremely skeptical. And especially what we're seeing now in 
uh, Clemson University, for example. It's what, a, what was it? Twenty three members of the football team tested positive for COVID. The exploding numbers in Florida, Arizona, California. Baseball is affected right now. Golf is affected right now. Pretty much every sport that you've seen attempts to restart has been affected in one way or another. And tennis is not going to be immune to that. And we'll get to why we think that that's the case based on what's been going on overseas. Right. So I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's just go through the actual news first and then we can comment on it. As part of this abbreviated summer schedule, there will be the Washington, D.C. tournament, the City Open, held in D.C. starting August 14th for the men. I don't think we have heard about the possibility of a women's tournament yet, but I believe it's being discussed. Because it's typically a joint event. Right. It's not currently in the WTA calendar, but apparently that is still open. Then, the Western and Southern Open that is normally in Cincinnati will be held in New York City the week before the U.S. Open. And then the U.S. Open. And because Cincinnati is moving to New York, that means that there will be no qualifying for the U.S. Open. Because typically, the week leading into the Grand Slam in New York City, it's this, it's this week-long qualifying extravaganza, pretty much. And so with Cincinnati playing that week, there's no room for qualifying. Right, and that week is also probably the biggest press week in the tennis schedule of the entire year. This huge blitz, you know, in stores, in restaurants, everywhere across Manhattan. Massive press event and revenue-generating stuff on the PR side. That's not going to happen this year, obviously. So much of this tennis news makes zero sense. One of the first ways in which it makes zero sense is the fact that DC is happening in DC. I would like someone to explain that to me because the idea of Cincinnati moving to New York was to create this kind of bubble as close as an approximation of a bubble as one could attempt to build. If you want to nitpick how that was impossible to begin with, that's a valid discussion to have. But the, the crux of this decision was so that players could be located centrally play Cincinnati in New York, and then segue into the U.S. Open and minimize exposure to COVID-19. Now, why is Cincinnati not just staying where it is if D.C. is staying where it is? Right, It's very weird. I thought, basically, I thought the idea was to get everyone in New York and say, let's get them there 10 to 14 days early, have everybody stay in New York, practice there, you know, stay in these designated hotels and it would be sort of a forced quarantine situation. I thought initially those were the plans. So now we're having DC. Obviously, not everyone will play there. It's a smaller tournament. We, but a lot of players have not played competitively anywhere. So, you know, some people may opt to play DC, Cincinnati, US. That'll be a lot. There, I think, will be injury concerns when you're coming back to play at such a high level. You have to be really smart about how much you're playing. It also lets me know that this whole business of a bubble and quarantine is all a charade at this point. Because there's no way for you to play DC, play Cincinnati, and the US Open, or any combination of these tournaments on this this truncated new tennis schedule while being in quarantine. Proper quarantine. Right, there's right. just no way. The idea is that once you've been exposed, 
potentially to the virus once you have not taken the necessary steps to ensure your 14-day stability. Then you must then take those steps before you then engage in something else, right? Like this is like a basic tenet of quarantine that everybody's familiar with at this point. And what the tennis establishment is telling us that for whatever reason, whether it's to to get money in the coffers, to ensure the survival of smaller tournaments, to make players whole, to supplement players' income, ranking points, whatever, they're saying that this no longer applies to tennis. This is not something that we're factoring in clearly at this point. Right. So we'll get there to, to the tournaments following the U.S. Open. But the rules for this one is, as we said, no spectators, no qualifying tournament, no mixed doubles. At this moment, no wheelchair tournament. Now, this created a huge controversy on social media yesterday when a few of the most prominent wheelchair players spoke out. Dylan Alcott, who's coming off a calendar year Grand Slam, by the way, spoke out and said this is clearly discriminatory. And there was no consultation or communication whatsoever, right? Like, we we learned that the wheelchair event was canceled from that press conference. And this is a common refrain mm-hmm. you've been hearing from players, that there was very little advance notice for a lot of these announcements. Or, I mean, notice at the minimum, but consultation should also be expected. With this wheelchair tennis fiasco, what we're seeing is what we've known and suspected all along, and this push to come back from the pandemic is laying it all the more bare that there is such a rigid hierarchy in tennis. There are the singles players and then that's it. And then even within the singles players, it's a certain few who control the narratives, whose best interests are taken into consideration first. And then it is the absolute illustration of a failed trickle-down economic situation. Because they're saying, like, we didn't even think about y'all. Like, y'all y'all don't even really matter. Right. So they had a call. The UST announced that they had a call today. Now they're reevaluating the role of the wheelchair tournament at this year's U.S. Open. So we don't know what's going to happen about that. But it's on the table now, apparently. The, uh, the hotel, the players can stay at the TWA Hotel at JFK Airport. They are also allowed to rent their own home. Estimated cost about $40,000, <laughs> which, you know, for some is not a big deal. So clearly there's a hierarchy of who will be staying at a hotel because all expenses are paid there. Uh, that's covered. Your travel is not covered, but they are covering the hotel. Or, you know, you can hook up with their realtor. I just said, well, you said, said that the like an American. Story. That's how you say it. Or their realtor. Yeah, not the realtor. Their real estate agent and figure out how to rent a home. It has to be outside of Manhattan. Entourages. There was that huge hullabaloo about entourages because I can't see top players coming on the grounds with one person. It's really the Novak Novak, plus one rule. Novak Djokovic can't see it either, right? (laughs) The Novak plus one rule. It was never going to be tenable. But people with spouses, children, whatever, nobody's going to want to do that if if you're a moneyed and comfortable tennis player. They've expanded the entourage on the grounds to three. And I imagine if you are a player who can afford a rented home, you probably have anyone in there you want, right? Who's going to come check? They can't even check check for your drugs properly when you're at home. <laughs> Let alone to see who is stashed yeah. away in the closet. So what else, what else are the rules? Um, they're not doing contact tracing or tracking. This quote took me out. 
because, quote, they are counting on players being judicious enough not to venture outside the bubble and jeopardize the health of others involved in the tournament. Where is the evidence that players would be judicious, based on what we've seen over the past week or so? Is it, uh, is it drugs? Like, is it crack? To, to have them make that why, statement? Why would you assume that players would be judicious and careful about their health when we've seen the Adria tour? Uh, the, UTI, the UTI tour? <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's wild, right? Like, there's not even a pantomime of distancing. There's not even a tacit acknowledgement that there is a worldwide pandemic of a serious disease. Do we trust the judgment of patient zero, Dominic Team? Right. To be making proper decisions. Yeah. So the reason a quarantine is important is because a lot of the players have been to many, many different countries since this whole thing started, right? Anyway. But listen, news just broke today of a situation on the PGA Tour. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't golf one of the sports used or cited as an example as to how tennis could move forward? Mm. And so they get through their first tournament last week without incident. Till today... When Nick Watney, who played last week and finished like 24th or something, he shows up and he had played around yesterday. He shows up to the ground, to the tournament today and says, well, look, I think I'm exhibiting symptoms. And the on-site doctor checks him out, gives him a test. Yes, he's positive. The PGA Tour issues a statement that we're here to support him, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Nick Watney arrived at the event privately via private transportation and did not make use of the charter plane that the PGA tour had set up. Mm. Was so it that an initial like a like an individual plane though? Or would he be on it with other players? I don't know. But mm. the point remains this speaks to this flexibility that you're giving to players to not impinge upon their freedoms and for them to make their their own decisions, not only in just their own best interest, but for the, the best interest of everybody involved. It's untenable. It's just not going to work. Right. So what was clear from the entire event on Wednesday was that this has been a very delicate negotiation between a lot of different stakeholder interests. You have players, especially top players, who you're trying to attract to the event because if they don't come, you are seriously fucked. You have the voices of lower range players who some of whom desperately want the events to go on because they have no income some of whom are in huge disagreement with the events going on as is you have the federations the usta said in the press conference that they have lost 80 percent of their net operating income this year and they are very generously giving a hundred percent of prize money at this event 95 or something that's what they said so there are a lot of competing interests, and one of the other competing interests is the interest of coronavirus, right? So you can negotiate all you want. These are not normal circumstances. COVID-19 doesn't really bend to the will of negotiation, we right? Are, like, like COVID's going to show up regardless. We are in the middle of a pandemic. Do you know what that means? <laughs> That is the name of this episode. Like COVID, she is out here, okay? Regardless of like whether you get Serena and Rafa to play the U.S. Open. And for those who need an explanation of what that reference is, (laughs) it's from when Mariah Carey was a judge in American Idol. And Mariah said, tour de force, tour de force, darling. And then she looks to the rest of the panel. Does anybody know what that means? (laughs) 
an iconic moment. The the event itself was clearly like a, a PR calculation. They got Serena Williams in there very early on to do this little video thing saying, I'm so excited to play the US Open. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be safe. It was short, but it was like, I'm coming. And the, I don't The words did not match her expression. It's one of those <laughs> videos where somebody, you know, those, those TikToks that have been going around during quarantine where teachers or parents are at home and they're saying, oh, you know, everything's great. I just made dinner. I love being at home with my family. And then they show you a, a paper that says, save me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it looked like yeah, in that video to was, me. The sign was cut off in her video. <laughs> but Stacey Allister, we, we haven't mentioned Stacey Allister's name. She is the new tournament director of the U.S. Open. She's somebody whose name has a lot of cachet in tennis. Absolutely. And has been progressing from top job to top job. And somebody who even, I believe, Ryan Harrison says is perfect for the job <laughs> as U.S. US Open right. director. Is like. Highly respected yes. of the former CEO of the WTA, which saw it make huge strides during her tenure. A lot of people look back and wish Stacy was still around. She's taken on this massive job, and this is what's on her plate as sort of her first action. I, I wonder if Serena's willingness to do this was partly because of a relationship with Stacy. I, I have no idea. but That is pure speculation. Right. Now, Alistair did let this little tidbit slip toward the end that they have shipped Serena the new surface of the U.S. Open and she is currently practicing on it at home. And we know this happens. You know, uh, players have gotten court surfaces installed at their homes. Uh, Martina Hingis did it with Rebound Ace. Yvonne Lendl was famous for it. He contacted the contractors for the U.S. Open surface and put it in his house. To me, this is a little different because it seems like the U.S. Open kind of just sent it to her directly. That's what it sounds like. Is mm-hmm. it we sent her the business info to mm-hmm. the contractor and then she right. sort we don't know. Possibly. So we know that these things happen. We know that top players have competitive advantages in a lot of different ways. To me, this is something that is transparently unequal treatment. And it shocked me in the moment that Stacey Allister would reveal that on an international stage. I don't know why she would want people to know that because it is like very clearly unfair. In so much as one of the biggest discussions we're having right now in tennis is how deeply unfair the system is, how it is set up to benefit the top 5% of tennis players and corporate interests, you know, and then everybody else has to fight amongst themselves for whatever breadcrumbs they can get. And then this, you know, right. it's, it is the definition of a bad look. And desperate times like this are going to re-entrench those inequalities. When money is tight, you're going to see them go toward the things that they know will generate income. If Serena is not there at the U.S. Open, they're going to have a little bit of a problem. Same way if Novak, Roger, and or Rafa are not there. I mean, we know Roger's not going to be there. So it's even more desperate that they need Rafa and Novak. See, I want to push back against that. Really? Because I think even without the big three or Serena, this would be one of the most watched U.S. Opens in a long time. Because what else are people watching? There's literally no other sports. You can make the argument that it's an opportunity to bring more people into the game with these top players there. 
But I do feel that that so many people are going to be watching this event regardless. But imagine the optics of the event if the top players chose not to play for safety reasons. If they made that judgment on the event, that has to have some kind of trickle-down effect. Well, who are the ones that are going to be making that statement Um, at this point? Rafa, maybe? He's of the big... Well, Federer is not playing. Rafa has set himself up to be able to make that statement believably. Serena could have made that statement, but like, who else of the men's tennis players could really make that statement? Because they're going to go play somewhere else anyway. I wanted to jump back for a second about the comparison of golf and tennis, Mm -hmm. because, you know, they're both physically distant sports, literally, like in the gameplay, right? And you were saying that golf could sort of be seen as a model for how tennis could reconvene. Those weren't my words. Those were me regurgitating all their people's words. Because it's an international sport, you have people having to fly from different continents to play it. Uh, The thing is, like, with golf and tennis, to me, the only thing that is entirely safe about the sports are the playing of the game itself. Everything else is fraught with risk, right? Relatively safe. Right. Relatively. It's, you know, safer than basketball, safer than football, soccer. But that's the only thing safe about it. Everything else is a huge risk. It's people traveling from different continents. It's having to travel from city to city once you arrive in North America or Europe. It's, you know, going in tournament transport. There are still so many people behind the scenes that are required to make a tournament happen. It's not two players and an umpire, and that's that. You know, like there are workers at these tournaments that you're going to need. Just because there are no spectators doesn't mean that everyone is distant. In theory, golf could work better than tennis Mm. because typically you don't have folks flying back and forth from Europe to the U.S. or from Australia to the U.S. to play golf. The U.S. tour, the PGA tour is a U.S. tour outside of the British Open. All the other majors are on U.S. soil. Mm -hmm. The entire tournament schedule is on U.S. soil. So you you could, in theory, if you got your players on board and willing to to follow a stringent COVID schedule of quarantine. You could charter them, shuttle them, quarantine them together for a long stretch. Right. They're like a traveling herd. What we're seeing in tennis is not that. We're seeing Novak Djokovic schedule this Adria tour, which mind you, people are saying oh, well, the numbers in Serbia are so much lower than everywhere else, and this is clearly a Western bias, and pay attention to the numbers, it's not the same. I would like to ask you, how quickly do you think it took Novak to organize this event? This took some planning. This was in the works Mm. for a while. So it's not like the numbers were like, oh, we're below a certain level today, let's get everybody here tomorrow. That's not what happened. We're having Novak out here... With the Adria tour, having a kid's day, posing up with a bunch of kids, playing soccer, which is what Noah Rubin really objected to. Not being on that Zoom call with three, four hundred other ATP players and the US Open and Andrea Gaudenzi while he's out here playing playing soccer. And then there's all these fans who are at the event. And then they have a player party where all these men are dancing up a storm shirtless to Macarena. <laughs> like, you literally cannot make this shit up. Right. Well, I th- we'll talk about that a little bit later, right? And that was even before Dominic Team showed up. 
Yeah, well, so, that's not true. He did show up in the middle of that. But you get my point. Mm. Like, people are coming from different countries. Well, yeah. Sasha Zverev has been to several different countries throughout this whole thing. It Like, that argument that this is anti-Serbian bias really starts to fall apart when you really think about the component parts. I really object to that because there is no criticism that you can launch at Novak Djokovic without being called a, a xenophobe. Right? Like, this is ridiculous. What this Adria Tour thing with spectators and players coming from all these different countries and hugging and kissing and whatever, like I said earlier, there's no even gesture toward the pandemic. It's like it's it never happened. Mm, it's, it's like we're done with you it. Know? So, yes, Serbia had about 12,000 COVID-19 cases and 252 deaths. That is comparatively low to Western European countries. That's great. That doesn't mean That's that a news. new wave isn't coming for them. That doesn't mean that players from other countries aren't going to be patient zeros to then create this clusterfuck now with this event. Right. And it, just, then, it simply doesn't mean that Serbia is immune. No. Right. It also doesn't mean that being critical of that kind of display is evident of anti-Serbian bias or anti-Novak bias. This is, I mean, the man has really gone out of his way to play in our faces. <laughs> right? He has taken step after step after step, loss after loss after loss, this entire quarantine period. He wanted to make everybody feel like he was one of them. He concealed the fact that he was staying in a McMansion for how long? Mm. And instead telling folks that he was staying, what, at his brother's place? His brother's flat? I don't know. Or something like that. It's like the lack of seeming... To take this seriously, this entire quarantine is mind-blasting. Right. From the whole... Well, the, the, the vaccine anti-vaccination thing. anti-vaccination thing, the the Zoom meetings with uh, Dr. quote-unquote Dr. what's the name? Chervin. The purification of water thing. Like, we, oh. you know, we had fun with that, right? Like, but it <laughs> it speaks to like a... A, a lack of judgment. A trend of poor judgment. This quote from him was telling to me. You can also criticize us and say this is maybe dangerous, but it's not up to me to make the calls about what is right or wrong for health. We are doing what the Serbian government is telling us, and hopefully we will soon get back on tour collectively. You're right. Yeah, you know, you're not a health official, you're not a member of the government, but it is possible to lead on some things. Right? You are, I mean, we're told you are literally one of the most important men in the Balkans. Like, you are an incredibly important figure in Serbia and the region. Why not just, like, lead by example? You know, I it is, a, it is just weird. It's, I mean, it's not even about leading, per se. It's about, even if you go ahead and do this thing, because there are other tennis bodies and entities who are trying to make tennis happen, right? They're at least trying to implement precautions. Th- this whole... Adria Tour thing was bereft of all that. There was there were no attempts. Right. It was as if COVID was done. And so it's not just me sitting here railing against Novak and saying, wow, you're terrible, you're awful, you're whatever, blah, 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 blah. But now all those people for me are complications for the US Open. Further complications. Mm-hmm. Like, do I want Dimitrov there? Do I want Djokovic there if I'm another player? If I'm a player who takes it seriously. Let's put right. it that way because... It's not just tennis players who do or don't take this seriously. Everybody in life at this point is either taking it seriously or not taking it seriously. We're entering into COVID conspiracy theory. 
we right, are which has I mean have existed from the beginning, but it seems exacerbated because people are so tired and in some cases desperate to yeah. get back to work or get out of the house. So many people but, who I know personally who took this seriously at the start are saying, "Wow, I'm I'm really starting to think this is a this is all fake." Right. And so you're seeing these exploding cases in certain states in the United States. In Florida, like we said, the headquarters of both tennis tours where basketball is supposed to come back, where baseball is happening, it is a mess. So Montenegro is banning Serbians from entering their country, which effectively canceled one of the legs of the Adria tour. I don't know. We don't know if that's political or what, or based on health statistics, but it was another sort of embarrassing thing that came out of that, that event. The only good thing, really, was that Yelena Yankovic, her extensions, they were back. Her dress, her printed dress. Chrissy Everett would be proud of that dress. I didn't watch. Like, I would be disingenuous if I said that it was great to see her back because I didn't watch. Um, But I'm glad she's back. But she's not coming back to the tour. Let's just, let's start. Hold up here. Let's start there. It's not, you're not going to say it's great, but it's good. Like, okay, what's the degree of difference there? I'm not going to say it was great to see her because I didn't see her. I didn't okay. watch it. Okay. I just saw some pictures. <laughs> that in itself is, is enough to be happy about. Okay, sure. Like, this is a woman who literally has disappeared off the face of the tennis earth. Which I for admire. For the last three years. I admire. If she didn't want to play, she just peaced out. No, it was more than that. She was injured. Right. It took forever to get over this injury that she had. And she said she's finally feeling good and over it. But she doesn't know if that will translate itself into a comeback. Mm-hmm. Or she's if that's something that no, she wants she's to She's not coming back. You don't know that. She's only 35 years old. Well, I was wrong about the U.S. Open happening, so... Yeah, but. you've been wrong about a lot of things in the past, as have mm-hmm. I. We, collectively, have been wrong about a lot of things. Yeah. All right. Before we move on, I did want to go through the revised schedules for both tours quickly. So on the ATP side, the aforementioned D.C., Cincinnati, New York triple is happening in the very next week during the U.S. Open... They're going to be holding Kitzbühel, which is basically Dominic Team's home tournament. It's a very interesting development because... <laughs> so they're holding it during the second week of the U.S. Open. They've made it... They say that top players will not be eligible to compete in Kitzbühel unless they have played and already lost at the U.S. Top Open. Top 10 players. Right. So they've top targeted... Ten specific players. Yes. Uh, so Dominic Team is one of them. He's won this tournament before. Um, he would obviously be highly motivated to play. So a lot of team fans are like, wait a minute. Is this the team rule? You're basically coercing him into coming over and playing the U.S. Open. Or put your money where your mouth is and skip the U.S. Open to play Kitzbühel. Right? Like it's a, it's so odd. And on the WTA side, there are a few examples like... Uh, Seoul is going to happen during Roland Garros. Istanbul is going to happen during the U.S. Open. But back to the ATP. After the U.S. Open, we got, bam, Madrid, Rome, Paris, week after week after week. The question again is, if you play the U.S. Open and you want to play the Masters events in Europe, you cannot possibly quarantine. If you reach the second week of the U.S. Open, Madrid happens about a week later, on September 13th, then Rome on September 20th, then Roland Garros on September 27th, there's no time for quarantine, right? That, that's that gone out the window. What I wonder is, have they created 
similarly to golf, a separate U.S. and European tour, do you believe that players will choose to play one or the other? No. The fact of the matter is, first round prize money at a slam is way too much in this current economic climate to pass up. If you are guaranteed a spot in that main draw, if you're one of those, say, what, 98 players who are guaranteed a spot in the in the first round of these two slams, that is enticing. That is $150,000 that you may not see again the rest of your life. Yeah. How do yeah. you pass that up, even in this time? I know I couldn't. I wouldn't. I guess and I wonder... What, I'm, what I'm, I want to posit to you, though, is it is possible if you are somebody, a player who believes that this virus and the dangers it presents is real, you could, in theory, pick your spots. You could say, I am going to play the U.S. Open and play the French Open, and that's it. Collect my $150,000, but I could theoretically quarantine myself under those circumstances because... The French Open pushed back its start date a week to allow for those two clay masters events to happen. And so there is a two-week gap between the US Open and the, the French Open now. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. <laughs> so that that in itself is is possible. Though the thing that's concerning though about this new schedule is that there is no <laughs> there's just no way to contain the virus under these parameters. There's just no way. No. All it's gonna take is one person to infect one person, and it's going to spread like wildfire. Because we've seen, too, that with Nick Watley on the PGA Tour, when he arrived at the tournament first, he tested negative. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's a, you can be careful. You can do tests, antibody tests, temperature checks. Not everyone is going to have a temperature. Not everyone shows symptoms. Like, there are so many ways for it to slip through. That's why this is a problem. Like, it's so incredibly infectious. I do wonder... If some players will be tempted to play, say, Cincinnati, New York, Madrid, Rome, Paris. Like, Dominic team. Right? If, let's say, a lot of players don't, you have this opportunity to get deep or win a Masters event. We don't know what's happening with the rankings. So, depending on the way the points shake out, this could be a massive opportunity as far as ranking points, money, clout, you know? So, what you're saying, there is incentive I think there, there for is. folks to take risks that they shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I understand the the need to create opportunities and to generate revenue for people who are not ranked in the top 10. And the Challenger Tour, for example, is very much supported by revenues from the USTA, from the ITF, right? Like these... The Oracle Challenger series just went right. kaput yesterday. So when tennis is making less money and when sponsors are not interested... A lot of lower range players are going to suffer disproportionately. I So I totally get that. It's just that, like, Corona doesn't really answer to those, those arguments. For the folks who do not believe that this pandemic is real or that the threats that have been presented about it are as serious as they actually are, one of the refrains that you hear most commonly is, well, we've got to get on with our lives. Surely. I would love to get on with my life. But that is not... It's not really an option. The, the financial incentive for those for whom the struggle is so bad right now, you can understand that. Yeah, yeah. It becomes more unseemly to me when the stakeholders at the top are making these decisions. That also, let's be real, it's not just a magnanimous 
we are here to save the world kind of situation, they are worried about their bottom line as well. And think about this. The US Open is here telling you, we are going to maintain, what, 95% of the prize money from last year, despite profits being down 80% year over year. What that tells me is that their coffers were pretty full. Well, yeah, I mean, they even said it in the press conferences that we planned ahead. We have cash in reserve, like we're going to survive. But it's still a, a massive hit for an organization like that. I guess what's frustrating about it is that it's being advertised as the players love this. Like this is all we care about is the players when that obviously is not the case. But also you're you're forcing people to make the decision of do I risk my health or do I risk my income? Like can I continue a career in tennis if I miss this year, if I don't make this money? But what are the risks entailed in that? And because people's governments are basically not supporting them. You know, if you're a U.S. player, you're kind of fucked. You have to get back to work. You have no choice. And that's on a, a broader scale. People who work paycheck to paycheck, which is most of the United States, they also don't have a choice. They need to get back to work. But you're forcing regular people, regular working people to make a dangerous decision in order to survive. It's frustrating. And then what are the the waivers that these players are going to have to sign, that these seasonal workers are going to have to sign to make money from this event. There's no way the USTA is having this event without people signing away their right to sue them. Right. And I mean, if you have money for a good lawyer, you might be able to get around it. But if you're someone who just works at the stadium, I don't know, the whole thing is it's just a lot. On the WTA side... They have planned past Rolling Girls. The ATP is still to be determined about their fall schedule. WTA is coming back in Palermo. They're doing Cincinnati US, Istanbul at the same time as the US. They're doing the Madrid-Rome Rolling Girls stretch. And then we're going to Beijing, which is the site of a current outbreak as we speak. We're going to Wuhan, which is the site of the original outbreak. Uh, well, I mean, you know, there, there are degrees, though, because of like, when this first happened, there was this Western bias, right? There that, was. When, when all these American players were like, hell no, I'm never going back to China. Fabio Fanin, I'll never play there again. Oh, right, or he'll never play in Asia again, uh-huh. right? When it's possible, it's, it's likely that so many of these cities are still far better equipped than so many of these American cities. Wuhan may have it well in hand, but Beijing is in a mini-crisis at the moment. And we don't even know if that's an abbreviated version of the crisis, because who can tell what's actual, accurate information coming out of that government? Yeah. They're also going to Moscow, Tokyo, and they plan on having the Shenzhen Finals and the Zhuhai Tournament as well. So we shall see. It is full steam ahead on the WTA. There are contractual streaming rights concerns for these tours, right? Maintaining those relationships and those contracts, we get that as well. But these are these are unprecedented times, and we are of the opinion that the sporting government should be more concerned about the players' health and safety, considering they're the ones whose labor is the actual product here. Yeah, could you tell that that was our opinion? <laughs> like, based on the previous 40 minutes? <laughs> this feels very heavy, this this episode. 
it feels super light compared to the last one. Well, so that's like, true. That's true. Last episode, we talked about everything that's going on with Black Lives Matter and all of the tennis players who are involved in the movement right now. One of the players who is most involved is Naomi Osaka. And today we saw her post a photo of her breakfast, presumably. Her, uh, what do you call that? Muesli, her, a parfait, a bowl of parfait. And in the background is a copy of Franz Fanon's text, Wretched of the Earth. Yeah, I was surprised to see that. A radical text about decolonization, but excited. And so I mentioned that as kind of a segue, a tangential segue into this next bit. We were listening to the Wreck-It podcast, their last episode, which featured Katrina Adams, former president of the USTA. And in it, toward the end, she recounted her experience at the 2018 US Open, where she was front and center on that trophy presentation stage and what that felt like to her. And this is not an incident in tennis history that we like to revisit, that we've revisited very often on the show. We often quip that it's something we never want to to deal with again. But it got us to watch it, that trophy presentation ceremony again, and look at it from a perspective that that hopefully has developed over time and, and made us think, well, how are the ways in which we view this now that are different from back then? And also... In talking about this now, we want you all, if you have been engaging with everything that's been going on in the United States, and consider too that anti-racist movements are not just happening in the United States, but everywhere around the world where there is racism, where there is anti-black violence. You know, like this is something that's affected everybody in the world at this moment. We want you to challenge yourselves to watch that again and see where maybe things that you've learned or read about or been exposed to in the in the time subsequent to that tournament if that has changed your thinking as well do we (laughs) i actually haven't i hadn't watched it since 2018 i watched it again today and it's a really difficult thing to sit through again katrina adams was roundly criticized for one particular thing that she said in the trophy ceremony she spoke about it on the the Racket podcast, and I honestly had forgotten it. She, yeah. she said something like, this isn't the outcome that we had hoped for. And a charitable reading of that would would infer that she was talking about, well, we didn't certainly didn't want all this bullshit to happen, right? This this mm-hmm. entire drama. And I think fiasco. it's absolutely fair to take her at, at face right. value when she says that. People assumed at the time what she meant was, well, we didn't want Naomi to win, but here we are. And I can I can see in that very emotionally charged moment reading it that way. So I think she's been asked to answer for that. Fine. I mean, I'm not I'm really not gonna hold her to the semantics of that. That is neither here nor there to me. That's not mm. what this segment is about. We know what happened. So much of the discourse surrounding that final was Serena acting a fool. Serena, there she goes again. She can't control herself. All this PR, late career, shift in persona was all fake. And this is who she really is. To be clear, you're talking about the discourse. The discourse, not actually what happened. I mean, folks who have been listening to us know what we said on that episode. I'm just saying. Yeah, for for people who 
don't like Serena, it confirmed a lot of the things they believed deeply about her. Mm -hmm. And so if you felt that way, do you go back and watch that final and the aftermath and the discourse surrounding it and think any differently? Do you understand more or are you able to, well, not put yourself in Serena's shoes, but but be able to, to conceive how she may have felt that this was one more thing done against her in a long list of microaggressions, of explicit racist aggressions throughout her career as a tennis player. Because consider too... Well, macroaggressions too. Yeah. <laughs> consider too that the whole Indian Wells thing, for over a decade, it was commonly held that, well... We don't know if that actually happened. The discourse was, we are entirely comfortable with questioning whether Richard and Venus heard those things, if Serena heard those things, if both of their decisions to boycott that event for over a decade was justifiable, if it met the alleged supposed crime. Yeah. Actually, I've been thinking a lot about that recently, because in the current climate this hopefully would have played very differently because at the time there was never a question of any of Serena's colleagues following her in boycotting that event, right? Like she she and Venus were on their own. No black player, no white player said, you know what, what happened there was messed up and I'm going to support Serena. In this day and age, that actually may not have been the case, right? If it had been a different player, if the aggression had been, well, caught on camera, or, you know, if Indian Wells had been subject to social media cancellation, I can see other players rallying around that person. Mm -hmm. But in this current climate where folks are finally opening up their minds to the, to the real fact of what it's like to be a black woman in America, a black man in America, and to deal with these things on an everyday basis, from Taylor Townsend saying that so many times when she shows up to tournaments... The security waves the white players through, but she's always checked. This is something that Leslie Allen has said mm -hmm. happened to her. This is something that happens all the time currently and all the time in the past. And so given that folks are maybe more aware of just how systemic and pervasive and bubbling below the surface racism exists and lives in America... Maybe they're willing to be more charitable to to Serena and 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 question the ways in which they tried to police her behavior in the past. Mm. The interesting thing, I mean, like my opinion was formed about that event a while ago, but the interesting thing about watching it back is thinking about what it was like for Katrina Adams to to have to confront this event in real time as an executive, what it was like for Serena, Naomi, and of course, like, I can only sympathize, I can't really empathize because I can't understand what it felt like to be them, but you, you know, you're beginning to hear stories from people like Leslie Allen, Katrina Adams, about all of these things that happen behind the scenes, and you know there's a lot of stuff they're not telling you, because they've told us there's a lot of stuff I'm not going to tell you, <laughs> but the stories that Leslie Allen in particular chose to say this week were were explosive and were much more honest than people are in tennis basically ever. You know, she told us that her opponent w stopped just short of saying his name. Her opponent in a French Open mixed final called her the N-word during the match. It took, what? The N-word and the C-word yes. in tandem. 
She said it was a it was her mixed doubles final at the French Open. Well, guess what? Leslie Allen played only one mixed doubles right. final she, in her career. She knew so we what know she who was it doing. Is. Like it took ten seconds to figure out who it was. But the point is, there are a lot of stories that these black players have, especially from previous generations, about what happened to them as as one of the few black players in tennis. And so I wonder when Katrina came down to the dais to do this, what the hell was going through her her mind? As now, as the representative, as the chief executive of the USTA, that is, I mean, talk about double consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. Like, well, in the interview on the Racket Magazine podcast, she said that there was about a six minute period from when she had to leave the president's box to get down on court. And in that time, she didn't see what had happened with the game penalty. So there was a lot that she right. missed. I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in with looking at this now, on the back of what we spoke about on our last episode, with respect to the emotional labor that we expect and take for granted that black women, black tennis athletes have to do yeah. in situations that we aren't even aware of. Like, it's one thing to be out here saying, well, let's not police... Naomi and, and Coco and expect them to do too much or let's not be out here calling out Venus for not doing or saying things in a timely manner to satisfy us. That's one way to look at the emotional labor of, of black women in tennis. But then you have the situation where Serena feels that all these things have been done to her that then lead to this event where the entire US Open crowd is booing. Because they're angry about what they perceive has been done to Serena. Yes. Right? So she she may agree with them. Who knows? Like at that moment, we don't know what she was thinking. But you could you could argue that this is a situation she created. Fine. Like that's your prerogative if that's how you read the situation. But then to be clear, if you still read it that way, we 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 think you need to do more work. Right, but it is, you know, that's your free will to to watch it however you see it. But in the moment when the booming is happening, she has to kind of do the work. And her, I mean, her speech was about quelling the crowd and di diverting attention to Naomi's achievement. Mm -hmm. That's what her speech had to do. That's what she felt she was responsible for in that moment. Spare a thought for Katrina Adams in that she is a black woman in that racially charged situation. But she's also a corporate executive. <laughs> right. That's a double consciousness that you talk about. Yeah. And when, oh my God, Tom Rinaldi. God. When Tom Rinaldi starts that presentation ceremony and says, welcome to the trophy presentation for the United States Open. And it's raining down booze. And he's like, well, here. Here, Katrina. Here's right. the mic. I mean, Naomi is crying. Serena's trying not to cry. Chris Everett is like, Jesus, what the fuck? She's like, I've never been more happy to be on the outskirts of a of a stage. <laughs> right. And Katrina's one job in that moment, and this is where you feel for her as a black woman being placed in this situation. Her one job as a corporate executive is to quell that situation. Hmm. And her words, albeit not her intent, only inflamed it. And so she gives her speech... And then the mic is handed off to Rinaldi, who then turns to Serena, asks her a question. And she, in that moment, says, respectfully, I'm just going to say a few words. And now the onus is thrust upon Serena to 
to make the situation better in some way, some kind of way. She has to suppress her own emotions, which she's entitled to in that moment. She lost. She felt that all this had happened and been done to her. But in that moment, she has to then do what Katrina didn't and tell the crowd like, listen, y'all need to come correct. This is not how it's going down. She has to then pivot to, to mother Naomi in that moment. These are the many different hats that black women have to wear at any given time, at any given moment, because who could have foreseen this? Right. Can you see John McEnroe doing that kind of work? Right. Like, let's say he had been defaulted or something like that. That would that would not be happening. One other thing to consider with Katrina Adams. What would we think of another USDA president in that role if they were a white person? Would we just say, well, what else do we expect a white person to do? Whereas with Katrina, because she is black, we're expecting her to handle that situation far better. And so we have more expectations on her to be able to navigate this space and and perform that emotional labor as a black person that we would not hold a white person to in the same situation, both being corporate executives. The, the really, the great outcome is of this is that at the time people tried to polarize Naomi and Serena and set up Naomi as this model minority as this docile figure who had been acted upon mm-hmm. as a sub as an object that the and, big black bitch right. had put upon this frail vulnerable light-skinned woman right and now now Naomi is calling Serena her tennis mom and reading radical decolonial literature that advocates violence against the colonizer. So where are you at now? <laughs> I mean, it, it is a truly standalone moment in the history of tennis. Yeah. That, that not only that final, but that trophy presentation. And it's a call to practice being more empathetic toward people. And to start to view the world in more... Shades of gray. Not just shades of gray, but intersectional ways. If you're tempted to think that race is not an issue when a black person is involved in an issue, you are wrong. That's <laughs> just the fact of it. Like colorblind, we're beyond that, right? It's just not. We're not. We're, no, we we're, 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 we're getting better, hopefully. Like this is one of the ways that this current movement can hopefully shift society. And also, as a white person, when it comes to thinking and feeling about the way black people act, your gut means shit. <laughs> you cannot trust your gut. Your gut has been conditioned to view things and the world and their behavior in a racist way. And it's been conditioned for you to have this initial instinct to wish for them to be a Huxtable, for them to behave like Claire and Cliff Huxtable. Like the, that, that is a starting point. Yeah, so think of anti-racism as a probiotic. <laughs> I'm, that was ter- I know that was a terrible joke, but you mentioned gut and okay. <laughs> I don't know if this is lighter fare, but it's different. Roger Federer has announced that any of this discussion about the U.S. Open or the rest of the tour is moot for him because he's done with 2020. He's getting surgery. It's I mean it's a perfect time. He doesn't have to engage with any of it. He doesn't even have to give his opinion because he will not be playing for the rest of 2020. Remember the last time that he took off more than half a season, he won the Australian Open in 2017. I'm not saying that's going to happen again, but there's literally 
no better time to get surgery. What does that mean? I mean, well, I, I feel like folks have been saying that ad nauseum. It's, it's okay. kind of like a meme at this point with Federer. Like, there's no better time for anything that Federer does. I'm, I mean, as you know, I'm not a loyalist. I'm just saying. I mean, the man, sure, the man needs surgery. He took sur- He's having surgery. Right, but I mean, you know how it is. If the season were going on, he may not have gotten it. You don't always need surgery, like at this very moment. You yeah, know, if there's a hint of sinisterism when people frame it like that, though, I know you are not doing that, uh-huh. but there is a hint of sinisterism. Oh. Like, of course, the world bends to Federer that the pandemic <laughs> happened so that he could take this right. last chance to fix his body and get himself right for one last push and suppress the charge from Nadal and Djokovic and then for once and forever crown himself goat when he wins two major titles yeah. in 2020. Um, at age, he would be 39 then? Almost I 40. Guess. Yeah. Mr. Djokovic, Djokovic's dad, he just can't stop talking about Roger in interviews. I'm you going to make I... an executive decision. Oh, okay. We're not talking about that. There is enough Djokovic. It did make me chuckle. There are enough Djokovic faux pas and missteps that have been talked about on this episode that we don't need to be getting into that because no, this, you're right. this man needs help. His parents should not reflect upon him. No. Yeah. I and agree. also his father needs help. <laughs> Okay, in the same age group as Roger Federer, Venus Ebony Star Williams just turned 40 years old. She does not celebrate birthdays due to her religion, so stop tagging her, but it is a milestone for the rest of us. Venus won Wimbledon 20 years ago in July. Jeez. Her first major title. I hope, I hope this summer you see a lot of retrospectives about that historic summer of 2000 when she won 35 straight matches fucked up Lindsay like, Davenport's beat, life beat repeatedly Lindsay, I think three times in that stretch like it, it's Lindsay just an ended incredible that breakthrough yeah mm-hmm. she did I think beat Martina Hingis for the first time in a major during that stretch as well just think like watching young Venus at Wimbledon is just so cool she's been going around in her Sia wig mm-hmm. her Nene Leakes uh, short fringe bob wig a lot of folks are out of pocket saying that it's terrible. First of all, it's let her live her life. Yeah. And second of all, I like it. Maybe I have terrible taste, but I'm here for it. She gave a great interview to tennis majors and Alize Lim from mm. her living room or right in front of her trophy case. It was about 12 minutes and it was more revealing than you'd expect from Venus. <laughs> and I would encourage you, if you are a Venus fan, to go check that out. But I will now segue into Tennis Majors itself. Like, what is it? What is it? Right? We were talking a few months ago with a colleague, and they were like, oh, yeah, they did this for Tennis Majors. I'm like, what the fuck is Tennis Majors? Have I been asleep at the wheel? No, I haven't. It is brand new. It is a Patrick Muratalu venture. It's basically like his content wing. It's his media outlet. He is (laughs) now the Roger Ailes of Tennis. This is his yes. Fox News. So he owns the Academy. He launched this UTS series thing, exhibition. Now he also has Tennis Majors, which is his content production social media project. And during the quarantine, a lot of sports writers are either out of work or they're underemployed. And they have been working for Patrick. So a lot of the names that you will recognize, like Ben Rothenberg, um, a lot of the British press... Carol Bouchard, formerly of L'Equipe, 
they are getting paid to write for tennis majors or do interviews or whatever. Well, we assume. We don't know for sure that they're being paid. Okay. Well. we. I'm just saying we don't know for sure. <laughs> anyway, he's got journalists working for this project. Oh. And so if you cannot envision a situation where conflicts of interest come into play mm-hmm. with this setup, I've got nothing for you. I just don't. You know, as a... A purist, as far as journalism is concerned, I always want to know what uh, what an organization's editorial principles are. So I would like to see Patrick's editorial principles. I would like to see him own it more forcibly yeah. and more publicly. Right. That because people know for sure that this is, what is it called? Tennis majors? Yeah. Tennis Marata glue. Call it that. I don't yeah. know. I mean, because it's SponCon, right? Like, it, it's, it's PR content. It's not journalism. Not to denigrate any of the people who are working for it i'm just saying like this is not a major newspaper there's clearly good content that can be produced from it yeah but folks need to know now speaking of not good content this has been a while coming for us on the show circumstances in the tennis world have not allowed us to opine until now but we are over it through with it tennis united we don't know why it exists. Yeah. I feel so. I feel like you rely on us to be an independent voice. I hope so. Like I hope that we still have that reputation. We are completely independent and feel that when it's necessary, we can sort of. You don't need to give that preamble. Just get it. I'm it. Just, fine, fine. Because I'm not trying to be messy. No, I'm just it, saying we so, are. We are two gay men with a gay podcast in the middle of Pride Month. We are not going to stand for this fine. shit. So this this actually reminded me of something. So bear with me. So Tennis United is kind of this joint venture between the ATP and WTA. It's a chat show online. It popped up during the pandemic. The hosts are Vashek Pospisil and Bethany Maddox-Sands. And recently, Andrea Gaudenzi, the ATP CEO, said that, you know, he was asked about the merger. Like, what's, what's the status? What do you envision the merger to be? And the headline was way worse than the content of the story. It, because the headline made me like, oh. But the content was like, listen, when I interviewed for this role, a closer collaboration with the WTA was one of my huge pitches. And that was received well, which is great. And he said, you know, on the customer, on the customer facing front, we want communications and branding and, and ticketing and all those things to be like a joint effort. We don't want the ATP and the WTA to compete directly. Like, that's great. They want, he wants to have one user experience. Right. And, and the idea that a merger is a process rather than uh, like, okay, one day we negotiate and now we're the same company. You know, they may never be the same actual organization, but working toward a less competitive collaborative relationship is great. Make this make sense for Tennis United sure. for me. So if Tennis United is the outcome, then I don't want it. Is that, like, is that too harsh? Uh, it's not the direction I would have gone. <laughs> oh, see, that was why I brought up the Gaudenzi stuff. <laughs> see, I don't think that Tennis United is a byproduct of this push to merge the tours. Okay. Okay, let's let's just start with the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. Was the Pride Month episode hosted by Vashek and Bethany, and which brought in Martina Navratilova and James Blake. They said on the episode, we are excited to have our first conversation for Pride Month. So maybe there's more to come. 
I sure hope so, because Martina Navratilova is in the midst of about an 18-month crusade of sharing pseudoscience, fake news about trans athletes in sport, setting up straw men about how trans women are about to invade and overthrow women's sport in general, retweeting and supporting J.K. Rowling in her continued effort to denigrate trans people, but say, I have trans friends. Um, But the thing is, though, that was such a departure for me because it went beyond the pulpit of trying to defend women and women's sport. That was an attack on trans women, period. Oh, of course. But that, you... was, that was saying and co-signing and agreeing with J.K. Rowling's tenet that trans women are not women. Right, but this also this obsession about biological sex, as if sex is under attack. You know, it's, ga- it's pure gaslighting because we know that they know what gender means as a concept. They simply reject it, and I wish they would be honest about it. So... J.K. Rowling sets up the straw man of people who menstruate. First, like, as if all all women menstruate. Even if you're talking about XX people. There's so much variation biologically among people who are XX. Sex itself is an amorphous condition, right? Like, biological sex is not presented in the same way every time. Anyway, without getting into all of that, Martina has been on this mission to prop up anti-trans voices for well over a year. So in my mind, it's what have you done for me lately? Are there truly no other female queer voices in tennis who are better equipped to talk about pride at this moment? Because Martina, what she's doing is, is really hurtful to this community that we're supposedly all part of. So let's just call it LGB pride. I just I find it objectionable to have her on at all at this moment. You could make the argument that, well, to be clear, the people who are making the decision to have Martina on the show, they don't know about that. Nor do they care about that. Nor, right. nor are they having the wherewithal to grasp yeah, Which that. is part of the problem. Yes, absolutely. If you are to, to grant that and say, well, Martina, which is true, Martina has done a lot to advance queer rights in her life and time. I don't think that's an objectionable statement up until this point, right? Like this is Mm -hmm. a woman who had to fight tooth and nail to exist within sport, within America, to defend her femininity, to defend her right to exist as an American woman, as an American gay woman, as like the outsider Czech woman who is threatening America's feminine ideal Chrissy Everett. You know, like, she's been through a lot. Right. The disappointing part is that at this moment in time, she has not come out on the other side in keeping with the current times. And so the big lesson here, and it's something that's not even on the radar of the people who are putting this together, is that sometimes our heroes of the past are not the heroes that are needed for the present. And it's a sobering thought, and it's not to denigrate Martina's history, and, and what she's contributed to the sport, that's a reckoning that she will have to have with herself and with her followers and those who support her at some point. But for us, for now, for a sport that has been so behind the curve in addressing and speaking to its queer constituents, the people who spend so much money and support so many of their players 
to have it come off feeling as though it's just tokenism, that it's just, uh, well, we've got to get through this because it's June, because it's Pride Month, we've got to put something out. And for it to come out falling so flat and to be so tone deaf, to have Vashik Pospisil in this seven or eight minute segment not say the word pride, not say the word gay, not say anything explicit about what the supposed segment is about. It speaks volumes. And then on the back of what you just said, all that context that you gave to why Martina's presence there was problematic, Vashik asks Martina, why do you think tennis has been the leading sport for the gender conversation? I guarantee you, Vashik has no idea what the supposed gender conversation is. Like, I want to know, what do you mean by that? If if you want to talk about the gender conversation, let's have at it with Martina, because she is not ready. Yeah, so if you don't buy my argument about Martina being there, watch the segment. Because, like, the trans thing doesn't come up, but the segment is just, it's like a nothing sandwich. It's it's a it's celebration wild. Tennis of is so all, great. how Tennis inclusive we've always been. All colors, all sexualities, all, like, okay, like, which colors? Purple, green, like, you know, it's that same sort of like, I don't care what color you are, green, purple, blue, this bland universality. It's, I just came away from the segment thinking like, why did this need to exist? And I know that I've, we've said many times before that it's better for these big companies and organizations to say anything, right? Just, just say anything. That's better than nothing. And I came away thinking like, well, you know what? Actually, maybe silence was preferable in this in this moment. Just change the logo. <laughs> Just change the logo. <laughs> also, Leslie Allen, if you haven't read her piece that she did with, with The Undefeated, she calls out the USTA for its statement that it made on Black Lives Matter and everything that's going on. And she said, you know what? I find this so objectionable because you have been complicit in contributing to this hostile racial environment in America for decades. You were so bad, in fact, that we needed to have an ATA, a separate tour and league for black players, up until 1950, when Alice Marble had to play white savior and say, listen, we have this player, Althea Gibson, who is probably the best in the country, and you all won't even let her play. Mm. Like, this is your history. And so for you to put out this, this statement and say that, oh, platitudes galore, that is not enough. What we want... And what a lot of folks are, are looking for now is for people to own their culpability and say, like, these are the things that we did in the past that were wrong, that contributed to why things have been difficult for so many people, why their lives have been unnecessarily hard. And these are the ways in which we are going to take steps. And so to come out here in the middle of Pride Month. And really the questioning was, why do you think tennis is so good at this? Like, what? It's not. What are you talking about? And so the other guest was James Blake. Who James Blake is booked and busy. Let me tell you, he is the guest for every show about racism in tennis. He's the guest for every show about queer visibility. You may have noticed that James is not LGBTQ. However, he is one of what? Two. Like th- two, three. And uh, erotic male pine. Right. One of the few ATP players, current or former, who have said anything gesturing so toward queer it's, visibility. It's going to be James Blake and Bran Vahali regurgitated, revisited, passing around 
the mic from show to show this entire month. Right. Like James, the, like he's always got something interesting to say. This is don't, not a, this don't is give not me a wrong. knock on him. Right. I just like wonder on a pride show, like James is really, he is the guy. He's the go-to guy because he is supportive of LGBTQ mm-hmm. issues. But the, the point what? is, the point is, how can you sit there and present to the public at large, to gay fans of tennis that, wow, Tennis is amazing. We've been so good. We've been so inclusive. We've been so this and that. When that's proven to not be the case. When Martina and Billie Jean were out here struggling for their their actual careers to exist on this mm. tour. Even though they built it. Because they were gay. Because they were outed in salacious ways. They had to have Chris Everett come to their defense and help salvage their careers in the midst of all this. Right. To be able to play on the tours that they created, that they sacrificed so much for. But more, and then you're coming here to come tell us, to, to present this rosy picture about how everything is great? No. The ATP has yet to acknowledge that we exist. Like, this is a joint event, but all we can see is James Blake. We asked Roger Federer about why there haven't been gay players on the ATP tour. Other players have asked top players to speak on that. And we've had like three or four top players speak on that. And then folks are like, why should they have to speak about that? This is why. Why not? Because nobody is speaking about it. And if we do not ask people and force people to speak about it, this is, these are the breadcrumbs that we will continue to get. We can't even get as much as I don't need it or want it. We can't even get the ATP to change its logo or acknowledge us in any way, shape or form. We get these bland, milk toast segments that have us out here like, oh my God, like we're supposed to feel that way? <laughs> or, is this, or is this, as I think, in a more sinister way, just to have people get off your back, right? This is to have people say, well, they did not say anything. They sure as hell didn't say anything mean- meaningful yeah. to put something out and say, well, we did it. And that's enough. Maybe this is progress. Maybe this is... Like the first step and like 15 years down the road, we'll have the next like 17, 18 year old young male ATP player be able to say like, yeah, like what what the fuck were y'all doing 15 years ago? Like, are you serious? Yeah. Like the resistance to change or even engage with these queer issues is just mind blasting to me. It's like a general slowness in in tennis, like who is creating this content? Who is speaking? Who do you choose to to be front and center? Who do you choose to be your sources and guests? Uh, more broadly, I think, you know, in the ATP, we very nearly had a CEO last year who is openly and unapologetically homophobic in Justin Gimmelstab. It's only because he beat the shit out of somebody on Halloween that Justin Gimmelstab is not the CEO. The ATP fosters this kind of behavior and... The other thread that you see is that when progress is made, it's disembodied from from power and from culpability, right? So Arthur Ashe was this amazing trailblazer, but do we talk about the fact that black players were playing on a separate circuit into the 60s and 70s because of a lack of opportunities, that tennis was segregated into the 1960s, that black players weren't allowed to play in the USTA, that when they were allowed to play in the regular tour... There were just horrifying instances of racism. Tennis needs not be congratulated for that because the tennis powers 
the institutions are not the ones who did that work. No. You know, to say, oh, tennis is great because we have gay people or because we have people of all colors. Like, what? Oh, okay. But, like, it doesn't mean anything. So they're they're regurgitating these same people over and over, okay? Would that lead you to believe that there's nobody who's willing to speak out or speak... I mean, when you say speak out, you make it seem like you're giving this great grand political speech that's going to change the world. And why would you imperil yourself and your reputation and your brands and your dollars to say that, oh my God, gay people are great and we thank you. We acknowledge you, we see you, and we thank you for supporting us in tennis. Right. Because Labar is so low, like, all you have to do is say, like, oh, they exist. Like, this is not, <laughs> this is not revolutionary stuff. Uh, yeah. And it speaks to a lack of vision and wherewithal and, and just desire to do this. Because let me tell you, there's this uh, WTA Quarantina trivia thing that's going on with uh, a fellow by the name of John Guerica. And what he's done in quarantine is he's reached out to to date about 14 current and former WTA players and had them on for Zoom sessions where they meet with these members of the GLTA, which is a, a gay lesbian tennis association. And so players from Madison Keys, you may have seen a tweet where she she said, oh my God, me and 50 of my new gay besties. Sasha Vickery has done it. Lucy Shavasheva has done it. So many players have done it. And you know what he did? He reached out to players on Instagram and said, hey, do you want to do this? Can you do this? Can you show up and do right. this? Like, it's that easy. And like they're to there. date, in quarantine, 14 of them have done it. And you mean to tell me that the ATP cannot find anybody? There isn't an ATP equivalent mm. of Sasha Vickery out there who doesn't happen to think that gay people are so vile that they can't even, like, speak a word on it? <laughs> right. Like, mm. when you tell me that you couldn't get anybody other than James Blake or Brian Vahali is the only person that I can get. That means that you're not trying. And you know what? My sympathies to Brian Vahali, because as long as he is the only one, he is going to be the only one. Yeah. And this speaks to the work that he will have to do, whether he likes it or not. And that is unfair on him. Unfair to him. And that's on what? And that's on period. <laughs> Got me all worked up. Mm -hmm. It's Pride Month. And, you know, Pride was a riot. Yeah. Like, I'm in no, no mood to be, like, all whoopsie daisies and like hunky dory and mm. kumbaya that is not my spirit this pride okay. i know i said and that's on period but another thing that's on ellipsis because to be continued <laughs> there's another thing miss bethany maddox sands may sit there and think that she is the most welcoming and amazing person that there is on earth but her husband is out here in these tr twitter streets propagating all kinds of maga and Trumpian bullshit. Yes. And so I want to have a discussion here and for y'all to consider that if you are with a spouse of different political views, because I'm being generous here in granting that to Bethany, that she is of a different political mindset. If we were to grant uh -huh. her that. She is, she's not vocal about her political views. Okay, okay. I'm saying if we were to grant her that. Mm. Are we really in a, a state of mind where... We can tolerate that from our spouse. Mm -hmm. And I posit that, that if you are, that is the product of whiteness. That is the comfort of whiteness. That because you are not intimately, tangentially affected by these issues that are going on right now, that you can sit there and tweet Black Lives Matter, but then your husband is doing all these other things. Well, because we're, like, we're not talking about 
federal monetary policy, you know, or some no. some small differences between Democrats and Republicans, like disagreements on policy. We're talking about a far-right, anti-immigrant, white supremacist government, or, you know, people who are actively anti-racist. I don't know. And when you consider that the, the episode that preceded the Pride special was Francis Teofo and Taylor Townsend speaking on Black Lives Matter, and neither... Bethany Maddox Sands, nor Vashik Pospisil. Bothered to promote it? The only or... episode in this series, of which there have been more than 10, that neither of them engaged with on their socials. They addressed it and spoke of it, acknowledged it at the start of this episode, but that was telling to me. Yeah. And so I want to tell folks too as well, do not be out here retweeting George Conway. George Conway is married to Kellyanne Conway, in case you didn't know. <laughs> Right, like he's not a hero. My mom always said, you are the company you keep. Like, if you were out here doing those things, you would be out the door. Hell, I'd be out the door. We would not be together. This whole business of spousal privilege in a court of law? No, I would snitch. Girl. A hundred percent. (laughs) Like. Is there anything else you're mad about? No. That's it? On those very incensed notes, I think we shall wrap it up. This is episode 199. Yeah. So we're really close to a milestone and we want to do a really special episode for episode 200. Yeah. You had said against my better judgment that we were hoping to get Xena on the show. I would have preferred that that not had been put out there. (laughs) Still trying. (laughs) But 200, it's hard to even like believe it. But we still want to celebrate it. And we think the best way that we can do 200 is to have that WT episode that we were planning. Yeah. And we're going to continue on from our history of pre-open era tennis and present an episode that lays out all that went into the WTA developing into what it is today. Separate and apart from Billie Jean and the original nine forming the tour. Like, that's not what that's about. Like, that will have already existed and been the precursor, the jumping off point into or travels into present day. Yeah, so this is a very big subject. So we are still trying to figure out which area we're going to focus on. But basically it's about, you know, what was the WTA like in the 1970s? What has been the history of boycotts, fights for equal prize money since the inception of the WTA? How do we complicate the public images of people like Billie Jean King and Chris Everett as we know them now and as people assumed they knew them at that time. Um, so we're just, I mean, we're having a lot of fun with with the literature. So, you know, we'll see what we come up with, but that's going to be episode 200. Please, no big scandal drama thing that we have to address <laughs> and waste our 200th on this. Right. Because it for sure will be episode 199B. <laughs> Uh, thanks for listening. I am James at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan. You can find me at tennis underscore John. This is the body serve. Huzzah. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.